Good morning. The scripture reading for today is from Exodus 23, 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Grace DC. It's my pleasure and privilege to preach this message to you from the passage you just heard in Exodus chapter 23. And I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, a caring courtroom, truth, justice, and the gospel way. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for your word that is living and active. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to speak the truth of your word into our hearts, that you would use these efforts of mine, weak and unworthy though they may be, to bless your people, meet us where we are, and give us what we need, faith, hope, encouragement, correction, whatever it might be, that we would be people who live for the glory of Jesus Christ, and we ask it in his name. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, here we are uh, approaching the middle of 2021, and after the pandemic year of 2020, it, it seems like 2018 was, was almost a decade ago, but it wasn't really that long ago. It was the fall of that year that the tragic death of Botham Shemjean was front page news. Botham was from the nation of St. Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean. He got his undergraduate degree from Harding University, a small Christian college in Arkansas, and following college, he got a job with Price Waterhouse Coopers in Texas, and his 26 years of life came to a tragic and abrupt end on September 6th of 2018. A white off-duty Dallas police officer named Amber Geiger mistakenly entered Mr. Jean's apartment thinking that it was her own. And a year later, Amber Geiger was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. During the trial, the former officer said that she feared for her life when she entered Botham's apartment. However, she also admitted that she didn't really follow proper protocol in assessing the situation at the very beginning. 
There was also text message evidence presented in the case that indicated some racial bias on her part. There was a mix of emotions, particularly among African Americans following the conviction. First, there was a sense of disbelief, but also a satisfaction that the judicial system had found a white police officer guilty in the killing of an unarmed black man. And then there was a feeling of disappointment and even anger at the 10-year sentence, knowing that she could be out of prison in five years. On radio talk shows, you had African-Americans call in and share how they'd been given the same sentence for lesser crimes. People wanted to know, what if the situation were reversed? What if an off-duty black police officer had shot and killed an unarmed white woman sitting in her own apartment? Would the sentence be so light? But the conversation around this trial became even more intense following the hug that went viral. Botham's 18-year-old brother, Brant, gave a victim statement and then asked the judge if he could approach Amber Geiger. He said these words. He said, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you, he told her. I love you as a person, he said, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he asked the judge, can I give her a hug, please? Please. And when the judge said that it was okay, Geiger actually rushed over to Brandt and wrapped her arms around him, and they held each other in a long embrace while sobbing could be heard in the courtroom. Even African-American State District Judge Tammy Kemp wiped away tears from her own eyes during the moment. And the visceral reaction to that moment is captured in two comments I heard while listening to an African-American radio talk show that same week. One African-American man called into the show and said this, what is wrong with that boy? If I were a member of his family in that courtroom, he said, I would have reached over and punched him in the face. Maybe forgiveness later down the line, but right now I want to see her suffer. I want her to experience some pain. Why are you running to forgive so fast? The next caller was another African-American man, and he had a different take. He said that justice had been done with the conviction, and then he talked about Brant Jean's hug and the fact that the judge hugged her as well and, and gave her a Bible. He said, what what I witnessed was a caring courtroom. He was implying that justice and mercy are not mutually exclusive or necessarily contradictory. Now listen, I, I need to be clear that this is a complex issue. We engaged the, this conversation during that time in, in our own family. There's an ease with which our society will, will celebrate black expressions of forgiveness towards whites and use them as a model of the picture of reconciliation. And there's also an ease at which our society will deplore black expressions of public protests against systemic injustice. And so this is not a neat and tidy issue. It's actually a messy one, and I think that our text helps us to wrestle with what is good and just and right, 
particularly for people for whom Jesus Christ is Lord. I got the title for this message, A Caring Courtroom, from that caller that I mentioned earlier. It fits the context which is dealing in this text with lawsuits and fairness and equity and justice for God's people. Legal matters are presented in this passage, but it's not a proof text for American jurisprudence. It is a passage that helps us to grasp the implications of what it means to obey God's command to love our neighbors. I have three Ps I want to share with you in this passage for the message this morning. I want to talk about the purpose of this passage the predisposition of the human heart, and the promotion of justice. The purpose, the predisposition, and the promotion. First, the purpose of this passage. Our passage is situated in the second section of the book of Exodus. Chapters 1 to 18 of the book of Exodus focus on God's delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, his saving them. Chapters 19 through 24 of Exodus focus on the giving of the law, and chapters 25 through 40 of the book focus on worship. And and here's the point. The purpose of this passage is wrapped up in its context. The Lord is explaining how his people are to live in light of the fact that he has saved them. They are situated at Mount Sinai. God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then the Lord says in verse 12 of Exodus 3, But I will be with you, he says to Moses, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. You shall worship God on this mountain. And three months after their exodus, they come to Sinai, and the Lord speaks to them with poetic tenderness. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, he says to them through Moses, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, the Lord said to Moses. You see, the law of God always comes in that context. God has demonstrated his power to save, his power to deliver, and now that they belong to him, now they need to know how to live. Now that you're a liberated people, how are you to live? We hear the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Commandments 1 through 4 are about our duty to love God. They're summed up in the command to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and might. Commandments 5 through 10 concern our duty to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's the beauty of it. God doesn't just give them these terse commandments, he begins to flesh out what they look like in practice. Our nine verses 
are working out the implications in a legal setting of commandments six, you shall not murder, commandment number eight, uh, you shall not steal, um, commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and commandment number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And here's a connection for us. What does it mean to be a Christian? See, the Christian life does not start or even continue with a list of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is rooted in love. It is rooted in an undeserved love of God from God to us. It is rooted in God's love directed towards rebellious people who are his enemies because of their rebellion. And when by faith our eyes are open to see and receive that love, we respond by confessing and repenting of our rebellious and sinful ways and we put our hope squarely in him and then we're able to grasp the fact that his law is a gift and not a vice. We're able to say, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You see, God works this way when it comes to people because he understands our second P, the predisposition of the human heart. He understands what our tendency is. He understands that our tendency is actually to love those who love us back or to love those who are able to love us back. We see a sandwich structure in these nine verses. Verses one to three and verses six to eight give us kind of uh, the bread, the simple commands, you shall not language that applies to giving testimony in a court. Verse, verses four and five in the middle are situational laws. They're like, if or when this situation takes place, then this is what you must do. We're gonna talk about the bracketing verses, the bread, if you will, those verses bracketing the sandwich in a minute, but listen again to the middle, verses four and five. Here's what the Lord says. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you will surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying down, exhausted under its burden, you will refrain from abandoning him. You will surely free it with him. And look, this isn't so much about ox and donkeys. It is God with shock and awe telling his people that neighbor love is to be extended to people they despise and people who despise them. God knows us all too well. He knows our predispositions. Where are we most likely to ignore and reject the implications of what it means for us to love our neighbors? 
It is with those who, for whatever reason, we believe are not worthy of that love. Stop and think about this for just a minute. Do you know of somebody who hates you? I know you're all wonderful, lovely people, right? But can you imagine, can you think of somebody who hates you or somebody who despises you? Even if you can't immediately think of, of somebody like that, imagine that you can. What is or what would be your natural inclination toward that person or those people, especially if you see that person with a real need that you are actually able to meet? An Israelite who came across somebody's stray ox or donkey would know that that person is suffering a loss in their ability to provide for themselves and their family. Both of the situations described in verses 4 and 5 affect somebody's livelihood. And the Lord knows that the Israelites' natural inclination is to have this kind of an attitude. Good. You deserve it. God is getting you back for how you've been treating me. But God doesn't call his people to engage in karma. <laughs> Tit for tat. He calls them to engage in compassion. And it's never more evident that when those who have done us wrong are in a position of real need and we have the opportunity to come alongside and meet that need. And this is why the context of the passage matters. Israel receiving this message as a delivered people would know that that is precisely what the Lord did for them. They were helpless, mumbling, grumbling, complaining against God, and he saved them. And in many respects, these verses may be summed up in Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 48, where the Lord Jesus says, Love your enemies. Extend and express love to those you and others despise in very practical ways. Lord Jesus says there, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The command for those who understand that they have been the undeserving recipients of the lavish love of God, the command for those people to love their enemies is not just a New Testament idea. It has always been the call for the people of God. Do you hear what Jesus says? He says that this love of, en of enemy is the demonstration that you are children of your Father in heaven because that's what he does. 
author, Arthur Brooks, has a relatively new book out that's titled Love Your Enemies. In it, he argues that America's current national problem, particularly as it relates to our political climate, is a culture of contempt. That is a culture where our disposition towards people who disagree with us is a toxic combination of anger mixed with disgust. As, as he writes, the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. This is the attitude we often bring to social media posts where there's disagreement. He writes this, every single one of us is going to have an opportunity on social media or in person to answer somebody's contempt. So you're gonna do the right thing, he says, and make the world a little bit better, show your strength, and try to make your enemies your friends? Or are you going to make the problem worse? That's a question, he writes, that each of us gets to answer probably in the next 24 hours. So here's the deal. You and I don't own any ox or donkeys, as far as I'm aware. But there's a nowness to the opportunity to actively reject the disposition of contempt to what those we find utterly intolerable and to express the kind of love that demonstrates a desire to will what is good for those we tend to despise. It's not only a rejection of this predisposition, it is also an active promotion of what is just and good. Look at who are referred to in those sandwich verses, verses 1 to 3 and 6 to 8, as he focuses on a courtroom setting. He focuses on this legal case setting. He says in verse 1, You shall not spread a false report. Do not join your hands with a wicked person to be a malicious witness. This is referencing a court case. So the wicked person being described is somebody who's guilty of the crime. Don't spread a false report, the Lord says. Don't deal in lies. That word for malicious has the sense of violence and wrong. The Lord is saying, it's not only wrong to give false testimony, but there's violence and harm done when you try to make the guilty look innocent. We see that in verses 7 to 8, where verse 1 forbids making the guilty look, look innocent. Verse 7 forbids making the innocent look guilty. He says in verse 7, you shall be far from a false charge and you shall not Kill the innocent and righteous because I will not acquit the wicked. And then he explains what might be the reason for doing this injustice of making the innocent or the guilty, or rather making the innocent guilty or the guilty innocent. In verse 8 he says, You shall not take a bribe because it blinds those who see clearly. And this connects a likely reason for the temptation to pervert justice. We're motivated towards self-centered gain and benefit. God's people are to be anti-injustice. 
And then in verse two, it's, it's the many or the crowd. The sense here is that very often the crowd exerts pressure to side with the majority opinion. And then verse three is it's, it's surprising to me. My normal way of working through a, a sermon passage is to do my own little uh, to do my own, well, it's not little, <laughs> but to do my own translation of the passage. And I got confused here in verse 3. Verse 3 says, here's my translation, you shall not be partial to or show favoritism to a poor person in their lawsuit. And so when I was doing the translation of that verse, I was struggling. I was like, is that what it really says? I was expecting more of what we see in verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to your needy in his lawsuit. That's more in line with what we normally see in the Bible when it comes to the marginalized. It's normally that they are taken advantage of and you have to promote their cause. In fact, some biblical scholars have postulated that there's a corruption in, in the Hebrew text in this verse because with one character, the word poor in verse three changes to great. And it would be, you shall not show, show favor to the great in his lawsuit, but that's not what it says. There's no textual evidence for that. Here's it, here it is. In a legal case, the Lord is forbidding giving an advantage to anybody. The poor have no advantage in society, but it's forbidden here to show favoritism in the courtroom, even to the disadvantaged. What God is driving home is this continued point that God is a just God, that he is a God of justice and righteousness. And in humanity, there's no inherent righteousness. <laughs> so whether we're wealthy or disadvantaged, it does not mean we've got some inherent righteousness. We can be wealthy and wrong. We can be poor and wrong. God says when it comes to doing what is just and right and good, show no partiality when you're dealing with something that's, uh, that's reflecting or that is an expression of evil or wrong. That's the sense here. The poor person could be wrong in his lawsuit. So don't show favoritism to him. As one commentator put it, God's people are to do what's right, not simply what feels right, or to do what is right, not simply what feels right. With God, there is never the perversion of justice. There is only the promotion of justice. The same point is made in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 with reference to both poor and, and great. It says there, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. At the heart of a caring courtroom is the cause of justice. See, here's the question. Whose agenda drives our attitudes and our disposition as we wade into the messy waters of the history of systemic injustice around race and ethnicity and class here in this country? Are we 
more informed by a heart of love that comes out of an understanding of God's love that has been put on display for us in Jesus Christ? Or are we more informed by the opinions in our echo chambers on social media and cable news? God's attitude towards their neighbors, the attitude rather towards their neighbors that God's people were to have is summarized in verse number nine. You shall not oppress the sojourner since you all know the sojourner's life because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. In other words, you all, he's saying, you know what it's like to be on the margins, God says. You all know what it's like to be on the outs. You all know what it's like to be unable to trust the system because the deck is stacked against you. And that's the attitude you are to bring to the issues of justice. It's it's one that does not neglect or forget the mercy that you've received. This love that God calls us to, this love that God commands us to exhibit is a love that is independent from attraction. It is a love expressed that is not based on whether we believe the recipients of that love are people we are naturally drawn toward. In fact, it is often most profoundly expressed in promoting the cause of those whom society, the world, our community is likely to despise, ignore, or reject. Promoting the cause of those who are the most vulnerable. It's because we have a rich understanding of the mercy When we are in Jesus Christ, it is because we have a rich understanding of the mercy that we've received. Let me bring this back as I wrap it up to the case that I opened with. My friend, Reverend Dr. Mike Higgins, he put it this way. True justice must preserve the humanity of the convicted and the victim. What we realize in the cause of justice is that we are always and only dealing with people who are image bearers of the true and living God. In this cause, we work in such a way that preserves people's humanity. This is the rub. This is the struggle. It is not is a struggle not to dehumanize people. And we and so we wade into the difficult waters of the attitude that you're running to forgive too fast. What about the history of black pain when it comes to white authorities? Yes, all of that. We wade into those waters. But the question is, what makes for the preservation of the humanity of the convicted and the victim? This is hard, but this is God's way. This is the gospel way. This is God's heart. The way of those who have been recipients of the lavish love and mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So this is my exhortation 
to you, to us, as those who know this lavish love and mercy of Jesus Christ, to be people who press into life by this gospel way to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God, as your word says, that with you the orphan finds compassion and mercy. Thank you for your redeeming work of bringing us into your lavish love. We pray that this is the kind of love that would spill out from us as a people towards our neighbors, promoting what makes for the humanity and dignity of all of our neighbors to the glory of your name. Amen.